Member for Lingiari. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this country, the Ngunnawal and the Ngambri people, and traditional owners of my, where I live in, Bantua country, the Central Aranda people. Mr. Speaker, it's an honour and a great privilege to be here, and it always has been. Just to contextualise what I'm about to say, the Northern Territory first got representation in this parliament 100 years ago in, uh, in the election of, of 1922 when Harold Nelson, HG, uh, was elected as a Labor candidate into this parliament. I was first elected in 1987, that's 35 years ago, and have been in the parliament for 32 years. 12 as a member for the Northern Territory and 20 as a member for Lingiari. My good friend in my neighbouring seat is Comrade Gosling, the member for Solomon. Over that period, I have been really, really fortunate, and in the context of Labor members of parliament, extremely fortunate. I've had 15 years in government, six years as a parliamentary secretary in the Hawke and Keating years, and six years as a minister in the Rudd and Gillard years. But the truth of it is that I wouldn't be here if it weren't for so many others. Yes, I was fortunate enough to be given those opportunities. But it's the, the good people of the Northern Territory and the Indian Ocean Territories that I owe the most. They are the reason I'm here. And I want to thank them for their ongoing support and friendship. My number one priority since coming to this parliament has been to advocate for and represent them in this place my number one priority. And just as a reminder, Lingiari is 1.34 million square kilometres. And the Indian Ocean Territories, way off there in the Indian Ocean, they're often forgotten by so many. But they have had the travails and trauma of the Tampa, children overboard, and deaths at sea my good friends in the Cocos Islands, just such a wonderful community. So it's a very dispersed electorate from the Red Centre, where I live, to the North and the Indian Ocean Territories. It has a wonderfully diverse population, although 42 per cent are Aboriginal people, for whom I am most thankful. The overwhelming support of Aboriginal people has meant I have been here election after election. Eleven successful elections, one which I lost. But as an indication, at the last federal election there were 194 mobile polling booths in the Northern Territory. 194. Across those booths I received 80 per cent of the vote. That's an indication and the reason why I'm here. My motivation, well, I should just say, I'm here because I've been so fortunate to be elected. 
But I actually grew up just down the road in Narrabunda. I never visited this joint when I was a kid. I never had ambitions to be a member of parliament. My first visit to the old parliament house when I was working in the Department of Trade when I was carrying ministerials over to John McEwan's office. That's a while ago. <laughs> and I'm not the only Snowden ever to seek election. This will be for my mates over there in the, the rural rump. Sorry, I beg your pardon, but they're our National Party comrades. <laughs> my grandfather, Percy Claude Snowden, stood as an independent, independent country party member for the seat of Murray Valley in the 1945 Victorian state election. Thankfully, his political genes didn't pass on to me. <laughs> but my motivation for seeking election in the first place was driven by my involvement in my church, community and sporting organisations, the mighty trade union movement and my job as a teacher. But perhaps the most important influence was that of Dr H.C. Coombs and Dr Maria Brandle, whom I worked with on a project in the Pinjarra homelands in the late 70s and early 80s. Dr Coombs was a magnificent and wonderful Australian who became a mentor of mine. And after I left that university job, I went back teaching and then I was fortunate enough to go and work at the Central Land Council in Alice Springs where my boss was Patrick Dodson, Senator. And our bosses were the traditional owners of Central Australia. And they taught me such a great deal and motivated me to want to become a member of this parliament. But I have to say, in my parliamentary journey over this 35 years would not have been possible without the love, support and sacrifice of Elizabeth and our children, Frankie, Tom, Tess and Jack. Elizabeth, my partner now for 40 years, took upon herself the primary responsibility of raising and nurturing our wonderful children and maintaining our household. I simply don't have the words to do you justice, Elizabeth. Or that they're adequate enough for me to express my love and gratitude. After all, our first child, Frankie, was born a fortnight before the first election. I was on the road in Tennant Creek electioneering and I rang the midwife this night and said, um, what, what's it look like? Is Elizabeth okay? The midwife said, everything's fine, don't worry, don't hurry back. I woke up at about three o'clock in the morning and thought, no, 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 that doesn't sound right. And so I woke up the person who was driving me, a good friend, and I said, do you mind going back to Alice Springs? I think there might be something happening. So we arrived in Alice Springs, I turned up at the house in Chewing Street, no one there. I said, God, bugger me dead, what's happened? <laughs> so I get to the hospital, go to the maternity ward, and there's Frankie with her mum being wheeled out of the birthing suite. So I missed you. I'm sorry. 
I don't think you've suffered as a result. Or at least I hope not. <laughs> and over the next years, Tom Tess and Jack came along, and Elizabeth took 12 years out of the paid workforce from her profession as a teacher until young Jack went to school. We're so proud of the four of them. They are wonderful human beings. And I do say that I'm sorry I wasn't around for you. And I was home uh, prior to the COVID period. I was only home around eight nights a month over that 30-odd years journey. And so I missed all those important days, birthdays, school events, all of those things. I also want to thank and acknowledge the sacrifice, loyalty and friendship of all those who have supported me over the period. To the members of the Northern Territory Labor Party, my union comrades, the volunteers, all of those who make it possible for us to be here. And I know that all of you understand that you might be the poster boy or girl, but in fact you're only there because of those who are behind you. Uh, and I'm ever so grateful. I also want to thank those electorate and ministerial staff that I had the great fortune to work with over many years. They effectively became my second family. Their dedication, friendship, professionalism, loyalty, resilience have been essential for me to be able to carry out my job. My closest comrades were always in my electoral office. And there are two who I'll only mention, Carol Burke and Jack Crosby, two wonderful, wonderful human beings who passed away whilst in the job. They are the truest of comrades, friends, advisers and, of course, fearless critics until the end. While I'm giving the thank yous, I'd like to obviously thank all the parliamentary staff, the cleaners, the gym staff, Hansard, security attendants, the clerks, the sergeant's office, speaker, the nurses, the gardeners, the caterers, the volunteers, the terrific library staff, so vital to what we do, the staff of Aussies who keep the caffeine up, and of course the transport office and the drivers who took us, look after us around Australia, and the airline staff um, with whom I've become so friendly. I think I spent close to two years, two years flying uh, over the period, and uh, I come to know those flight attendants really very, very well. Um, but let's just now talk about the journey. It was a different world in 1987. No mobile phones, no internet. My first office had a computer and a fax machine. I travelled for days around the electorate without any form of communication back to home base. And I recall my first speech down there in the old Parliament House with my mum and dad in the Speaker's Gallery and Elizabeth with Frankie upstairs with um, a great friend. My first office 
was in the old Parliament House, a pokey little joint on the Senate side, around nine square metres. Couldn't swing a cat, certainly couldn't have any more than one visitor. Uh, and my neighbour at the time, my first neighbour, was John Hewson, who was also elected at that election. So life in the old Parliament House was so, so far different from what you lucky buggers have got here. <laughs> Until we arrived here in 1988. There was very scant security. The parliamentary bar was a constant buzz and a meeting place of literally all sorts. But I'd had experience of being in that place for a couple of years prior because with now Patrick, Senator Dodson, we're involved working with the Northern Territory Land Councils and campaigning against changes which the then Hawke government wanted to make over land rights, particularly national land rights. And we were keen to prevent uh, them falling to the trap which had been set by Brian Burke as the Premier of Western Australia who opposed national land rights. So we were unwilling and campaigned to make sure that no legislation which was passed undermined the existing rights of Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory through the Northern Territory Land Rights Act, and we were successful. Now, over the years, of course, you meet some really wonderful people, and very early on, uh, Jerry Hand became a very close friend along with Nick Balkus and after the 1990 election, Simon Crean and Darrell Mellon. Over the last 20 years or thereabouts, I've shared accommodation with now lifelong friends, Nick Balkus for a while, Simon Crean. When Nick retired from this place, we were looking for someone to come and stay, so we auditioned a few. <laughs> but we interviewed Brendan. He was a successful candidate, poor bugger. That was about the initiation. Yeah, that's right. But that house in Narrabunda has some wonderful memories, and if only the walls could talk. That's right. The dinners, the plotting, the planning, the conniving, the arguments. They all took place there. And some of them had more than a passing impact on events in this place. And at some point, if those walls could talk, you'd hear some stories. Thankfully, you won't hear them from me. <laughs> now, the ALP caucus, it's an interesting beast. Um, and over the years, there have been some very unique characters, all with a lot to offer. Lively policy debates, leadership ballots, vacancy ballots. I lost one once. Didn't make me happy. <laughs> a democracy, as my comrade says. And I have to say that over the years, it's become a much tamer affair. You need to lift your game. <laughs> But, but I do enjoy the friendship of my caucus colleagues, particularly at our regular Thursday night dinners, yeah. which are an opportunity 
to decompress, have a yarn or just be plain silly, and there's a lot of that happening. But the one outstanding and positive change that has come to our caucus is the feminisation of our caucus. Yeah. In 1988, only 9% or thereabouts of our members on the House of Representatives floor were women. It's now 48% and after the next election will be over 50%. Yeah. All because of the hard work done by women in our caucus. Thank you. And the wonderful legacy of Julia Gillard as our nation's first female Prime Minister. And now I know for certain that the pathway to leadership, the pathway to leadership is open to all women in our caucus. A few blokes have got to actually loosen the grip a bit, but that'll happen, don't worry. <laughs> and the most re recent reckoning of the abuse of women in the parliament work parliamentary workforce and in the workplace and the acceptance of the need for action and cultural change is welcome and long overdue. Now, there are a lot of things I could talk about about being a minister, but there just simply isn't time, and I wouldn't do justice to the very, very many people I had the great good fortune to work with in the various portfolios. Um, you know, I have great memories of those times and it's been a great honour, it was a great honour and a great privilege. But I do want to just mention a couple of things about the caucus that I wasn't happy about. There were decisions taken by the caucus which I opposed. I kept caucus solidarity, but of all the decisions that caused me most concern was the decision by the Howard government to intervene in Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory, which I strongly opposed, as I did the abolition of ADSIC, which I strongly opposed, as I did the decision to ban live cattle exports from the Northern Territory, which I strongly opposed. These decisions were unnecessary and caused hurt and harm. And in the case of the intervention in the Northern Territory, the repercussions are still being felt. The trauma is still there. Can I just say that in relation to those ministerial responsibilities, what I learnt and was reaffirmed my belief in public service was the importance of the people in the public service who work for us as ministers or work for us as ministers. And it reaffirmed in me the belief for a strong, independent public service in the Coombs tradition. An independent public service is central to our democracy and system of government. And I want to thank those many fine public servants whom I had the good fortune to work with as well as those thousands of people who work in public service offices around this country working for us. But I do think it's well past the time for another review of the type of the Coombs Royal Commission of the 70s. Um, I was going to talk about the parliament, uh, but I'm aware the time is passing 
But I just do want to make the observation that this, it is such, such a privilege to be in this parliament debating, representing the interests of our constituents. There could be no finer job to be done. No finer job. And work as a parliamentarian is the best work. Is the best work. And we might throw barbs across the chamber, but the reality is we're all here for a good purpose. We might disagree, but if we do show some respect for one another, as we should, despite the political rhetoric and the barbs that are thrown, we are here for a good purpose. And the people of Australia rely upon us to do that job. I want to just comment on the parliamentary committee process, and I see my chair of the Aboriginal Affairs Committee, Julian Leister, is here, and the chair of the North Australian Committee, Warren Inch, is here. Two committees that I've been involved with for a long time, as well as the Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade Committee, which I've enjoyed. And I have to say to you that these committees work really, really effectively because of the bipartisan way in which we address the issues and the respect we show to one another and those who appear before us. So I just want to say to people here, and I'm, it's just so sad that the recommendations which come from out of those committees are so often shelved, when in fact they should be the guiding light to what happens. Now, at the very outset of this wonderful journey that I've been involved in, I made clear in my first speech that my priority and desire to represent and advocate for the interests of First Australians was my most significant responsibility. So I've sought to have this place understand the need to address the injustices experienced by Aboriginal people and have their rights as First Australians properly recognised and addressed and their needs met. But if I look at the last past 32 years in this place, the outcomes, sadly, have been often very frustrating and sadly disappointing, and their needs have not been met. So many remain marginalised and in poverty, living in poor and overcrowded housing with the scandalous levels of preventable chronic disease. In my view, largely driven by the institutionalised racism that has been so much part of government since Federation and the ongoing refusal to accept the need for truth-telling and acknowledgement of past and continuing injustice. Over the time I've been in this place, there have been periods of great hope, great hope, and then times of great disappointment. Now, I've mentioned the Hawke government as being a bit of a disappointment on the issue of national land rights, but they did so many other very good things. The Barunga Statement and the call for a treaty in June of 1988, Prime Minister Hawke said in the, a document he signed, and I quote, we expect and hope and work for the conclusion of such a treaty before the end of the life of this parliament. Sadly, that was not to be. It was not to be because we couldn't get the support of the then opposition parties. A tangible indication of positive change was the establishment of ADSEC. <coughs> ADSIC gave First Australians a voice and decision-making responsibilities at a regional and national level. Sadly, it had its demise under the Howard government. A very significant victory and a very important victory for the Jarwin people of the country adjacent to Kakadu National Park 
came when the Prime Minister Hawke used his personal authority in Cabinet to prevent mining at Coronation Hill, Gurutba, mm -hmm. the home of Buller. That was in spite of trenchant opposition from sections of the Cabinet and the caucus. I just want to quote from a uh, uh, an article by Sid Maher in 2015, in which he quotes Bob Hawke at the time. Mr. Hawke, he quote, Mr Hawke said that when the issue came before Cabinet and there was support for the mining proposal, quote, I was annoyed beyond measure by the attitude of many of my colleagues of their cynical dismissal of the beliefs of the Jarwin people. He challenged Cabinet that those who opposed the Jarwin position essentially were saying that traditional owners were talking bullshit. I think I made probably one of the strongest and bitterest attacks I have ever made on my colleagues in the Cabinet, Mr Hawke said. He said there was no doubt this contributed to his loss of the Prime Ministership by Paul Keating in 1991. Mr Hawke said he attacked the monumental hypocrisy of Cabinet rejecting the Jarwin's beliefs about their God, while the same people who denigrated that belief can easily accommodate and embrace the bundle of mysteries which make up their white Christian beliefs. He said that this supercilious supremacist discrimination was abhorrent to everything he held to be important Labor beliefs. That was an important moment, historically important moment. Then we had reconciliation. Patrick Dodson appointed the chair of the reconciliation, as reconciliation council. Paul Keating pursued reconciliation that gave that momentous speech in Redfern Park in December of 1992. For the first time, a prime minister spoke about dispossession, violence, prejudice, and injustice suffered by first Australians. He then was responsible for initiating the passage of the Native Title Act following the High Court decision in Mabo. And in 1994, Keating government adopted racial hatred legislation, including 18C. In 1995, the Keating government commissioned the National Inquiry into the separation of children and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families with Commissioners Sir Roland Wilson and Pat's brother Mick. The Bringing Home report was tabled in 1997, but sadly Prime Minister Howard obdurately and obstinately refused to apologise to the stolen generations. So sadly, the election of the Howard government brought a crash into despair. ADSIC was preemptively scrapped. Self-determination and self-management as drivers for public policy were also scrapped. But the most debilitating decision for people in my electorate was the decision by the Howard government for the intervention. But then there are the attacks on native title. In 1996, in the, after the Wick High Court case, the then Deputy Prime Minister attacked the High Court judges as being activists. That resulted in then what was, became the Howard Ten Point Plan, which depleted the rights of Aboriginal people as uh, native title holders, it broadened the power of federal and state governments to extinguish native title and made the, the initiating of claims difficult and very restrictive. That needn't have happened, but it did. Unwinding the intervention was a significant challenge for the Rudd and Gillard governments. 
The initiative to close the gap was most welcome, but despite the rhetoric, sadly little has changed. Kevin Rudd's apology to the stolen generation was of momentous historical importance and significance. It marked a huge step forward. But the gathering at Uluru and the statement from the heart in May 2017 has provided the opportunity to reset the agenda. There is simply no excuse now, in 2022, for any government to walk away from the need for constitutional recognition of a voice to the parliament, truth-telling and a process of treaty. So when I reflect on my over three decades in this place, I remain appalled at the failure of successive governments to come to terms with our First Peoples and accord them the recognition and justice that is their due. Or despite the rhetoric so often heard about closing the gap, to even do the simplest things by addressing the harshest poverty suffered by so many and providing them with adequate and safe housing that would do so much to change their lives. The housing crisis requires the investments of billions, not millions, an investment that would make such a difference to Aboriginal people in my electorate and elsewhere across the country. The COVID crisis has in plain sight reaffirmed the appalling result of overcrowding housing. And if we are at all serious about improving health, education and employment outcomes, then the housing crisis must be addressed. It's urgent. If we are to stop preventable diseases such as rheumatic heart disease, then we must fix the housing problem. There are so many other things that need to be done, and some of which flow from the inquiry into the destruction of Indigenous heritage at Duke and Gorge, which my colleague was there, Patrick Dodson. And these involve the need to domesticate into Australian law the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, to which Australia is a signatory and has yet not domesticated into Australian law, and most importantly to incorporate the principle of free prior and informed consent in all laws. Following me, I hope, in this parliament will be a great Australian, Marion Scrimmager. Um, she will be the candidate for the Labor Party an Aboriginal woman of leadership and distinction, a former Deputy Chief Minister of the Northern Territory. I want to I'll conclude in a moment, but I do want to acknowledge and thank my colleagues from the Northern Territory who have served in this place. Bob Collins, who was a senator, was my close friend, Senator Trish Cross and Senator Nova Paris and Senator Mar um, uh, Mullingerry McCarthy. Can I thank them for their friendship? I now want to just conclude, if I may, Mr Deputy Speaker, by again emphasising my heartfelt thanks for being given the honour of serving here. There cannot be a greater honour. There cannot be a greater honour. And I hope that all of you appreciate the importance of your presence here and the importance of making sure we have good government. You know, it's going to be sad for me to leave this joint. Um, it's been my life. I want to conclude by quoting Patrick Dodson at the National Press Club in 1985. I remember this speech 
because not only was I working for Patrick at the time, but we had as an editor Mungo McCallum. <laughs> but I'll just finish by this quote, which I think is as relevant today as it was then. Quote from Patrick, if this nation is to ever attempt to wear the mantle of maturity, to have any sense of pride and independence, to claim it is a just and fair society, you must first negotiate with us, the traditional owners of this country, the people you have sought to conquer. Non-Aboriginal Australians have an obligation to negotiate with us, not simply on the basis of imposing preconceived interpretations of what rights we can have from you through governments, but on the basis of justice and equity. Thank you, Mr. Deputy Speaker.